Part One of Portrait of a Man with Red Hair by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part One: The Sea Like Bronze, Section One. One, you're my friend. I was the man the Duke spoke to. I helped the Duchess to cast off his yoke too. So here's the tale from beginning to end, my friend. Two. Ours is a great wild country. If you climb to our castle's top, I don't see where your eye can stop. For when you've passed the cornfield country, where vineyards leave off, flocks are packed, and sheep range leads to cattle tract, and cattle tract to open chase, and open chase to the very base of the mountains where, at a funeral pace, round about, solemn and slow, one by one, row after row, up and up the pine trees grow go like black priests up and so down the other side again to another greater wilder country to another greater wilder country to another greater one the soul of charles percy harkness slipped like a neat white pocket handkerchief out through the carriage window into the silver blue air hung there, changing into a tiny white fleck against the immensity, struggling for escape above the purple-pointed trees of the dark wood, then, realizing that escape was not yet, fluttered back into the carriage again, was caught by Charles Percy, neatly folded up, and put away. The browning lines, old-fashioned, surely, had yielded it a moment's hope, those and some other lines from another outmoded book but the place reasserted its spell marshalling once again its army its silver-belted knights its castles of perilous frowning darkness its meadows of gold and silver streams the old spell working the same purpose for how many times and for what intent that we may be reminded yet once again that there is the step behind the door the light beyond the window the rustle on the stair and that it is for these things only that we must watch and wait for harkness had committed the folly of having two books open on his knee a peck at one a peck at another a long eager glance through the window at the summer scene but above all a sensuous state of slumber hovering in the hot scented afternoon air just above him waiting to pounce to pounce first browning then this other the old book in a faded red-brown cover to paradise frederick lester at the bottom of the title page eighteen ninety two how long ago how faded and pathetic the old book was he alone in all the British Isles at that moment, reading it, certainly no other living soul, and he had crossed to Browning after Lester's third page. He swung in mid-air. The open fields came swimming up to him like vast green waves, gently to splash upon his face, hanging over him, laced about the telegraph poles, rising and falling with them. The voice of the old man with the long white beard, the only occupant of the carriage with him, broke sharply in like a steel knife cutting through blotting paper. Uh, pardon me, but there is a spider on your neck. Harkness started up. The two books slipped to the floor. He passed his hand, damp with the afternoon warmth, over his cool neck. He hated spiders. He shivered. His fingers were on the thing. With a shudder, he flung it out of the window. Thank you, he said, blushing very slightly. Not at all, the old man said severely. You were almost asleep, and in another moment it would have been down your back. He was not the old man you would have expected to see in an English first-class carriage, save that now in these democratic days you may see anyone anywhere but first-class fares are so expensive. Perhaps that is why it is only the really poor who can afford them. The old man, who was thin and wiry, had large shabby boots, loose and ancient trousers, a flopping garden straw hat. His hands were gnarled like the knots of trees. 
He was terribly clean. He had blue eyes. On his knees was a large basket, and from this he ate his massive luncheon. Here, an immense sandwich with pieces of ham like fragments of banners. There, a colossal apple, a monstrous pear. "'Going far?' munched the old man. "'No,' said Harkness, blushing again. "'To trellis, I change at Jurth, I believe. We should be there at four-thirty.' "'Should be,' said the old man, dribbling through his pear. "'The train's late.' "'Another tourist,' he added suddenly. "'I beg your pardon,' said Harkness. "'Another of these damned tourists. You are, I mean. I lived at trellis. Such as you drove me away.' "'I am sorry,' said Harkness, smiling faintly. "'I suppose I am that, if by tourist you mean somebody who is travelling to a place to see what it is like and enjoy its beauty. A friend has told me of it. He says it is the most beautiful place in England.' "'Beauty,' said the old man, licking his fingers. "'A lot you tourists think about beauty, with your charabangs and oranges and babies and Americans.' If I had my way, I'd make the Americans pay a tax, spoiling our country as they do. I am an American, said Harkness faintly. The old man licked his thumb, looked at it, and licked it again. I wouldn't have thought it, he said. Where's your accent? I have lived in this country a great many years off and on, he explained, and we don't all say, I guess, every moment, as novelists make us do, he added, smiling. Smiling, yes, but how deeply he detested this unfortunate conversation. How happy he had been, and now this old man with his rudeness and violence had smashed the piece into a thousand fragments. But the old man spoke little more. He only stared at Harkness out of his blue eyes, said, Trellis is too beautiful a place for you. It will do you harm, and fell instantly asleep. Two. Yes, Harkness thought, looking at the rise and fall of the old man's beard, it is strange, and indeed lamentable, how deeply I detest a cross word. That is why I am always creeping away from things. Why, too, I never make friends. Not real friends. Why, at thirty-five, I am a complete failure. That is, from the point of view of anything real. I am filled, too, with self-pity, he added, as he opened to paradise again, and groped for page four, and self-pity is the most despicable of all the vices. He was not unpleasing to the eye as he sat there thinking. He was dressed with exceeding neatness, but his clothes had something of the effect of chain armor. Was that partly because his figure was so slight that he could never fill any suit of clothes adequately? That might be so. His soft white collar, his pale blue tie, his mild blue eyes, his long tranquil fingers, these things were all gentle. His chin protruded. He was called gaunt by undiscerning friends, but that was a poor word for him. He was too slight for that, too gentle, too unobtrusive. His hair was already retreating deprecatingly from his forehead. No gaunt man would smile so timidly. His neatness and immaculate spotless purity of dress showed a fastidiousness that granted his cowardice an excuse. For I am a coward, he thought. This is yet another holiday that I am taking alone. Alone, after all these years, and Pritchard or Mason, Major Stock, or Henry Trenchard, Carstairs Willing, or Falk Brandon, any one of these might have wished to go if I'd had courage, or even Meredith himself might have come. The only companions, he reflected, that he had taken with him on this journey were his etchings, kinder to him, more intimate with him, rewarding him with more affection than any human being. His seven etchings, the seven of his forty, La Pierre's Rue de la Gilles, Le Gros Cabagne dans les Marais, Rembrandt's Flight into Egypt, Muirhead Bones Orvieto, Whistler's Drury Lane, Strang's A Portrait of Himself Etching, and Marion's Rue des Chantres. 
his seven etchings, his greatest friends in the world, save, of course, Hetty and Jane, his sisters. Yes, he reflected, you can judge a man by his friends, and in my cowardice I have given all my heart to these things because they can't answer me back, cannot fail me when I most eagerly expect something of them, are always there when I call them, do not change nor betray me. And yet it is not only cowardice. They are intimate and individual as no other form of graphic art. They are so personal that every separate impression has a fresh character. They are so lovely in soul that they never age nor have their moods. My aldegrivas and puns, he was reflecting, he was a little happier now, the browning and to paradise fell once more to the ground. I hope the old man does not waken, he thought, and yet perhaps he will pass his station. What a temper he will be in if he does that, and then I too shall suffer. He read a line or two of the browning. Ours is a great wild country. If you climb to our castle's top, I don't see where your eye can stop. How strange that the book should have opened again at that same place, as though it were there that it wished him to read. And then, to paradise, a line or two, now page 376. And the silver button, would his answer defy that too? Had he some secret magic? Was he stronger than God himself? And then, Harkness reflected, this business about being an American. He had felt pride when he had told the old man that that was his citizenship. He was proud, yes, and yet he spent most of his life in Europe. And now, as always, when he fell to thinking of America, his eye traveled to his own home there, Baker at the portals of Oregon. All the big trains pass it on their way to the coast, 340 miles from Portland, 50 from Huntington. He saw himself on that eager arrival, coming out by the 11.30 train from Salt Lake City, steaming in at 4.30 in the afternoon, an early May afternoon, perhaps, with the colors violet in the sky and the mountains elephant dusk, so quiet and so gentle. And when the train has gone on and you are left on the platform, and you look about you and find everything as it was when you departed a year ago, the Columbia Café, the Antlers Hotel, the mountains still with their snow caps, the lumber offices, the notice on the wall of the café, you can eat here if you have no money, the Crab Bill Hotel, the fresh, sweet air, 3,500 feet up, the soft paws of the place, Baker did not grow very fast, as did other places. It was true that there had been but four houses when his father had first landed there, but even now, as towns went, it was small and quiet and unprogressive. Strange that his father, with that old-cultured New England stock, should have gone there, but he had fled from mankind after the death of his wife, Harkness' mother fled with his three little children, shut himself away, there under the mountains, with his books, a sad, severe man, in that long, rambling, ramshackle house. Still long, still rambling, still ramshackle, although Hetty and Jane, who never moved away from it, had made it as charming as they could. They were darlings, and lived for the month every year when their brother came to visit them but he could not live there. No, he could not. It was exile for him, exile from everything for which he most deeply cared. But Europe was exile too. That was the tragedy of it. Every morning that he waked, he thought that perhaps today he would find that he was a true European. But no, it was not so. Away from America, how deeply he loved his country, how clearly he saw its idealism, its vitality, its marvelous promise for the future, its loving contact with his own youthful dreams. But back in America again, it seemed crude and noisy and materialistic. He longed for the past, exile in both with his New England culture that was not enough, his half-cocked vitality, 
that was not enough never enough to permit his half-gods to go but he loved america always he saw how little these europeans truly knew or cared about her how hasty their visits to her how patronizing their attitude how weary their stale conventions against her full bursting energy and yet and yet he could not live there after two weeks of baker even though he had with him his etchings his diary in its dark blue cover fraser's golden bow and some of the Loeb classics life was not enough hetty and jane bored him with their goodness and little culture club it was not enough for him that hetty had read a very good paper on archibald marshall the modern trollop to the inhabitants of baker and haynes nevertheless they seemed to him finer women than the women of any other country with their cheery independence their admirable common sense their warm hearts their unselfishness but it was not enough no it was not enough what he wanted three the old man awoke with a start and when you come to this prohibition question he said the americans have simply become a laughing-stock harkness picked up the browning firmly if you don't mind he remarked i have a piece of work here of some importance and i have but little time pray excuse me four how had he dared never in all his life had he spoken to a stranger so how often had he envied and admired those who could be rude and indifferent to people's feelings it seemed to him that this was a crisis with him something that he would never forget something that might alter all his life perhaps already the charm of which meredith had spoken was working he looked out of his window and always afterwards he was to remember a stream that now bright silver now ebony dark ran straight to him from the heart of an emerald green field like a greeting spirit it laughed up to his window and was gone he had asserted himself the old man with the beard was reading the hibbert journal strange old man but defeated harkness felt a triumph could he but henceforward assert himself in this fashion all might be easy for him instead of retreating he might advance stretch out his hand and take the things and people that he wanted as he had seen others do he almost wished that the old man might speak to him again that he might once more be rude he had had ever since he could remember the belief that one day suddenly some magic door would open some one step before him some magic carpet unroll at his feet and all life would be changed for many years he had had no doubt of this he would call it perhaps the coming of romance but as he had grown older he had come to distrust both himself and life he had always been interested in contemporary literature. Every new book that he opened now seemed to tell him that he was extremely foolish to expect anything of life at all. He was swallowed by the modern realistic movement as a fly is swallowed by an indifferent spider. These men, he said to himself, are very clever. They know so much more about everything than I do that they must be right. They are telling the truth at last about life as no one has ever done it before. But when he had read a great many of these books, and every word of Mr. Joyce's Ulysses, he found that he cared much less about truth than he had supposed. He even doubted whether these writers were telling the truth any more than the naive and sentimental Victorians and when at last he read a story all about an american manufacturer of washing-machines whose habit it was to strip himself naked on every possible occasion before his nearest and dearest relations and friends and when the author told him that this was a typical american citizen he knowing his own country people very well frankly disbelieved it these realists he exclaimed are telling fairy stories quite as thoroughly as grimm fouquet and de la mer 
The difference is that the realistic fairy stories are depressing and discouraging. The others are not. He determined to desert the realists and wait until something pleasanter came along. Since it was impossible to have the truth about life anyway, let us have only the pleasant hallucinations. They are quite as likely to be as true as the others. But he was lonely and desolate. The women whom he loved never loved him, and indeed he never came sufficiently close to them to give them any encouragement. He dreamt about them and painted them as they certainly were not. He had his passions and his desires, but his Puritan descent kept him always at one remove from experience. He never, in fact, seemed to have contact with anything at all, except Baker in Oregon, his two sisters, and his forty etchings. He was so shy that he was thought to be conceited, so idealistic that he was considered cynical, so chaste that he was considered a most immoral fellow with a secret double life. Like the hero of Flegeljara, he loved every dog and wanted every dog to love him. But the dogs did not know enough about him to be interested. He was so like so many other immaculately dressed, pleasant-mannered and wandering American cosmopolitans that nobody had any permanent feeling for him. Fathered by Henry James, uncled by Howells, haunted severely by Edith Wharton, one of a million cultured, kindly, impersonal Americans seen as shadows by the matter-of-fact unimaginative British. Who knew or cared that he was lonely? longing for love, for home, for someone to whom he might give his romantic devotion. He was all these things, but no one minded. And then he met James Meredith. 5. The meeting was of the simplest. At the Reform Club one day he was lunching with two men, one a novelist, Westcott, whom he knew very slightly, the other a fellow American, Westcott, a dark, thick-set man of about forty, with a reputation that, without being sensational, was solid and well-merited, said very little. Harkness liked him, and recognized in him a kindly shyness rather like his own. After luncheon, they moved into the big smoking-room upstairs to drink their coffee. A large, handsome man of between fifty and sixty came up and spoke to Westcott. He was obviously pleased to see him, putting his hand on his shoulder, looking at him with kindly, smiling eyes. Westcott also flushed with pleasure. The big man sat down with them, and Harkness was introduced to him. His name was Meredith, Sir James Meredith, a strange, unreal kind of name for so real and solid a man. As he sat forward on the sofa with his heavy shoulders, his deep chest, his thick neck, red-brown color, and clear, open gaze, he seemed to Harkness to be the typical, rather naive, friendly, but cautious British man of business. That impression soon passed. There was something in Meredith that almost instantly warmed his heart. He responded, as to all American men, immediately, even emotionally, to any friendly contact. The reserves that were in his nature were from his superficial cosmopolitanism. The native, warm-hearted, eager, and trusting American was as real and active as it ever had been. It was, in five minutes, as though he had known this large, friendly man always. His shyness dropped from him. He was talking eagerly and with great happiness. Meredith did not patronize, did not check that American spontaneity with traditional caution as so many Englishmen do. He seemed to like Harkness as truly as Harkness liked him. Westcott had to go. The other American also departed, but Meredith and Harkness sat on there, amused and even absorbed. "'If I'm keeping you,' Harkness said suddenly, some of his shyness for a moment returning, Oh, not at all, Meredith answered. I have nothing urgent this afternoon. I've got the very place for you, I believe. They had been speaking of places. 
Meredith had traveled, and together they found some of the smaller places that they both knew and loved. Gregor, on the sea beyond Copenhagen, the woods north of Helsingfors, the beaches of Ischia, the enchantment of Hirhente, with the white ghosts moving over carpets of flowers through the ruined temples, the silence and mystery of Mull. He knew America, too, the places that foreigners never knew, the teeth-shaped mountains at Las Cruces, the lovely curve of Tacoma, the little humped-up hills of Syracuse, the purple horizons beyond Nashville, the lone lake shore of Marquette. "'And then in this country there is Trellis,' he said softly, staring in front of him. "'Trellis?' Harkness repeated after him, liking the name. "'Yes, in North Cornwall, a beautiful place.' He paused, sighed. "'I was there more than ten years ago. I shall never go back.' "'Why not?' Well, "'I liked it too well. I dare say they've spoiled it now, as they have many others.' thanks to wretched novelists, the railway company in Sharabanks, Cornwall, and Glebeshire are ruined. No, I dare not go back. Was it very beautiful? Harkness asked. Yes, beautiful, oh, beautiful, oh, yes, wonderful, but it wasn't that. Something happened to me there. So that you dare not go back? Yes, dare is the word. I believe that the same thing would happen again, and I'm too old to stand it. In my case now, it would be ludicrous. It was nearly ludicrous then. Harkness said nothing. How old are you, if it isn't an impertinence? Thirty-five? You're young enough. I was forty. Have you ever noticed about places? He broke off. I mean, well, you know, with people, suppose that you have been very intimate with someone, and then you don't see him or her for years, and then you meet again. Don't you find yourself suddenly producing the same set of thoughts, emotions, moods, that have perhaps lain dormant for years, and that only this one person can call from you? And it is the same with places. Sometimes, of course, in the interval, something has died in you, or in them, and the second meeting produces nothing. Hands cross over a grave. But if those things haven't died, how wonderful to find them all alive again after all these years. How you had forgotten the way they breathed and spoke and had their being. How interesting to find yourself drawn back again into that old current, perilous perhaps, but deep, real, after all the shams. He broke off. Places do the same, I think, he said. If you have the sort of things in you that stir them, they produce in their turn their things, and always will, for your kind, a sort of secret society. I believe, he added, suddenly turning on Harkness and looking him in the face, that Trellis might give you something of the same adventure that it gave me, if you want it to, that is, if you need it, do you want adventure, romance, something that will pull you right out of yourself and test you, show you whether you are real or no, give you a crisis that will change you forever? Do you want it? Then he added quietly, reflectively, it changed me more than the war ever did. Do I want it? Harkness was breathing deeply, driven by some excitement that he could not stop to analyze. I should say so. I want nothing so much. It's just what I need, what I've been looking for. Then go down there. I believe you're just the kind, but go at the right time. There's a night in August when they have a dance, when they dance all around the town. That's the time for you to go. That will liberate you if you throw yourself into it. It's in August, uh, August the... Um, I'm not quite sure of the date... I'll write to you if you'll give me your address. Soon afterwards, with a warm clasp of the hand, they parted. 6. Two days later, Harkness received a small parcel. Opening it, he discovered an old brown-covered book and a letter. The letter was as follows. Dear Mr. Harkness, in all probability, in the cold light of reason and removed from the fumes of the Reform Club, our conversation of yesterday will seem to you nothing but foolishness. Perhaps it was. 
the merest chance led me to think of something that belongs for me to a life quite dead and gone not perhaps as dead though as i had fancied in any case i had not until yesterday thought directly of trellis for years let me put it on the simplest ground if you want a beautiful place near at hand for a holiday that you have not yet seen here it is trellis north cornwall take the morning train from paddington and change it truth if you will be advised by me you really should go down for august sixth when they have their dance i could see that you are interested in local customs and here is a most entertaining one surviving from druid times i believe go down on the day itself and let that be your first impression of the place the train gets you in between five and six take your room at the man-at-arms hotel ten years ago the most picturesque inn in great britain i cannot of course vouch for what it may have become i should get out at truth which you will reach soon after four and walk the three miles to the town well worth doing one word more i am sending you a book a completely forgotten novel by a completely forgotten novelist had he lived he would i think have done work that would have lasted but he was killed in the first year of the war and his earlier books are uncertain he hadn't found himself this book as you will see from the inscription he gave me i was with him down there some things in it seem to me to belong especially to the place pages 102 and 236 will show you especially what i mean when you are at the man-at-arms go and look at the minstrels gallery if it isn't pulled down or turned into a jazz dancing hall that too will show you what i mean or go as perhaps after all is wiser simply to a beautiful place for a week's holiday forgetting me and anything i have said or as is perhaps wiser still don't go at all in any case i am your debtor for our delightful conversation of yesterday sincerely yours james meredith what meredith had said occurred as the days passed the impression faded harkness hoped that he would meet meredith again he did not do so during the first days he watched for him in the streets and in the clubs he devised plans that would give him an excuse to meet him once more the simplest of all would have been to invite him to luncheon he knew that meredith would come but his own distrust of himself now as always forbade him why should meredith wish to see him again he had been pleasant to him yes he was of the type that would be agreeable to any one kindly genial and forgetting you immediately but meredith had not forgotten him he had taken the trouble to write to him and send him a book it had been a friendly letter too why not ask westcott and meredith to dinner but westcott was married harkness had met his wife a charming and pretty english girl younger a good deal than her husband yes all right about mrs westcott but then harkness must ask another woman meredith he understood was a widower the thing was becoming a party they would have to go somewhere to a theatre or something the thing was becoming elaborate complicated and he shrank from it so he always shrank from everything were he given time to think he paid all the gentle american courtesy and attention to fine details of conduct englishmen often shocked him by their casual inattention especially to ladies he must do social things elaborately did he do them at all he was gathering around him already some of the fussy observances of the confirmed bachelor and therefore as meredith became to him something of a problem he put him out of his mind just as he had put so many other things and persons out of his mind because he was frightened of them trellis too as the days passed lost some of the first magic of its name he had felt a strange excitement when meredith had first mentioned it but soon it was the name of a beautiful but distant place then a seaside resort then nowhere at all he did not read lester's book 
Then an odd thing occurred. It was the last day in July, and he was still in London. Nearly everyone had gone away, everyone whom he knew. There were still many millions of human beings on every side of him, but London was empty for himself and his kind. His club was closed for cleaning purposes, and the Reform Club was offering him and his fellow clubmen temporary hospitality. He had lunched alone, then had gone upstairs, sunk into an armchair, and read a newspaper. Read it, or seemed to read it, it was time that he went away. Where should he go? There was an uncle who had taken a shooting box in Scotland. He did not like that uncle. He had an invitation from a kind lady who had a large house in Wiltshire, but the kind lady had asked him because she pitied him, not because she liked him. He knew that very well. There were several men who would, if he had caught them sooner, have gone with him somewhere, but he had allowed things to drift, and now they had made their own plans. He felt terribly lonely, soused suddenly with that despicable self-pity to which he was rather too easily prone. He thought of Baker. Lord, how hot it must be there just now. He was half asleep. It was hot enough here. Only one other occupant of the room, and he was fast asleep in another armchair, snoring. The room rocked with his snores. The papers, laid neatly one upon another, wilted under the heat. The subdued London roar came from behind the windows in rolling waves of heat. A faint iridescence hovered above the enormous chairs and sofas that lay like animals panting. He looked across the long room. Almost opposite him was a square of wall that caught the subdued light like a pool of water. He stared at it as though it had demanded his attention. The water seemed to move, to shift. Something was stirring there. He looked more intently. Colors came, shapes shifted. It was a scene, some place. Yes, a place. Houses, sand, water, a bay, a curving bay, a long sea line, dark like the stroke of a pencil against faint eggshell blue water, a bay bordered by a ring of saffron sand, and behind the sand, rising above it, a town, tier on tier of houses, and behind them again, in the farthest distance, a fringe of dark wood. He could even see, now, little figures, black spots dotted upon the sand. The sea, now, was very clear, shimmering mother-of-pearl, a scattering of white upon the shore as the long wave-line broke and retreated, and the houses tier upon tier. He gazed, filled with an overwhelming breathless excitement. He was leaning forward, his hands pressing in upon the arms of the chair. It stayed, trembling with a kind of personal invitation, before him. Then, as though it had nodded and smiled farewell to him, it vanished. Only the wall was there. But the excitement remained, excitement quite unaccountable. He got up, his knees trembling. He looked at the stout, bellying occupant of the other chair, his mouth open, his snores reverberant. He went out. Six days later, he was in the train for trellis. 7. Now, too, of course, he had his reactions, just as he always had. He could explain the thing easily enough. For a moment or two he had slept, or, if he had not, a trick of light on that warm afternoon, and his own thoughts about possible places had persuaded him. Nevertheless, the picture remained strangely vivid. The sea, the shore, the rising town, the little line of darkening wood— he would go down there, and on the day that Meredith had suggested to him. Something might occur. He never could tell. He packed his etchings, his saint Giles, Marais, his flight into Egypt and Orvieto, his Whistler and Strang and Marion. They would protect him and see that he did nothing foolish. He had special confidence in his saint Giles. He had intended to read the Lester book all the way, but, as we have seen, managed only a bare line or two. 
the browning he had not intended even to have with him but in some fashion with the determined resolve that books so often show it had crept into his bag and then was on his knee he knew not whence and soon out of self-defence against the old man he was reading the flight of the duchess carried away on the wings of its freedom strength and colour nevertheless that is the kind of man i am he thought even the books force me to read them when i have no wish and soon he had forgotten the old man the carriage the warm weather how many years since he had read it no matter wasn't it fine and touching and true when he came to the place the door opened and more than mortal stood with a face whereto my mind centred all beauties i ever saw or shall see the duchess i stopped as if struck by palsy she was so different happy and beautiful i felt at once that all was best and that i had nothing to do for the rest but wait her commands obey and be dutiful not that in fact there was any commanding i saw the glory of her eye and the brow's height and the breast expanding and i was hers to live or to die hurrah harkness cried i beg your pardon the old man said looking up harkness blushed i was reading something rather fine he said smiling you'd better look out for what you're reading to whom you're speaking where you're walking what you're eating everything when you're in trellis he remarked why is it so dangerous a place asked harkness it doesn't like tourists i've seen it do funny things to tourists in my time i think you're hard on tourists harkness said they don't mean any harm they admire places the best way they can yes and how long do they stay the old man replied do you think you can know a place in a week or a month do you think a real place likes the dirt and the noise and the silly talk they bring with them what do you mean by a real place harkness asked places have souls just like people some have more soul and some have less and some have none at all sometimes a place will creep away altogether it is so disgusted with the things people are trying to do to it and will leave a dummy instead and only a few know the difference why up in the welsh hills there are several places that have gone up there in sheer disgust the way they've been treated and left substitutes behind them parts of london for instance do you think that's the real chelsea you see in london not a bit of it the real chelsea is living well i mustn't tell you where it is living but you'll never find it however americans are the last to understand these things i am wasting my breath talking the train had drawn now into drymouth the old man was silent looking out at the hurrying crowds on the platform he was certainly a pessimist and a hater of his kind he was looking out at the innocent people with a lowering brow as though he would slaughter the lot of them had he the power old testament moses harkness named him after a while the train slowly moved on they passed above the mean streets the hoardings with the cheap theatres the lines with the clothes hanging in the wind the grimy windows but even these things the lovely sky shining transmuted they came to the river it lay on either side of the track a broad sheet of lovely water spreading on the left to the open sea the warships clustered in dark ebony shadows against the gold the hills rose softly bending in kindly peace and happy watchfulness silence we're crossing the old man cried he was sitting forward his gnarled hands on his broad knees staring in front of him the train drew in to a small wayside station gay with flowers the trees blew about it in whispering clusters the old man got up gathered his basket and lumbered out neither looking at nor speaking to harkness he was alone he felt an overwhelming relief he had not liked the old man and very obviously the old man had not liked him but it was not only that he was alone that pleased him there was something more than that it was indeed as though he were in a new country 
the train seemed to be going now more slowly with a more casual air as though it too felt a relief and did not care what happened time engagement schedules all these were now forgotten as they went comfortably lumbering the curving fields embracing them the streams singing to them the little houses perched on the clear-lit skyline smiling down upon them it would not be long now before they were in truth where he must change he took his two books and put them away in his bag should he send the bag on and walk as meredith had advised him three miles not far and it was a most lovely day he could smell the sea now through the windows it must be only over that ridge of hill he was strangely oddly happy london seemed far far away america too any country that had a name a date a history this country was timeless and without a record how beautifully the hills dipped into valleys streams seemed to be everywhere little secret colored streams with happy thoughts everything and every one surely here was happy then suddenly he saw a deserted mine tower like a gaunt and ruined temple haggard and fierce it stood against the skyline and as harkness looked back to it it seemed to raise an arm to heaven in desperate protest the train drew into truth eight truth was nothing more than a long wooden platform open to all the winds of heaven and behind it a sort of shed with a ticket collector's box in one side of it harkness was annoyed to see that others beside himself climbed out and scattered about the platform waiting for the trueless train to come in he resented these especially because they were grand and elegant two men long thin in baggy knickerbockers carrying themselves as though all the world belonged to them with that indifferent assurance that only englishmen have a large stout woman quietly but admirably dressed with a pekingese and a maid to whom she spoke as cleopatra to charmian five boxes gun cases magnificent golf bags these things were scattered about the naked bare platform the wind came in from the sea and sported everywhere flipping at the stout lady's skirts laughing at the elegant sportsman's thin calves mocking at the pouting pekingese it was fresh and lovely all the cornfields were waving invitation it was characteristic of harkness that a fancied haughty glance from the sportsman's eye decided him he's laughing at my clothes harkness thought how was it that englishmen wore old things so carelessly and yet were never wrong harkness bought his clothes from the best london tailors but they were always finally a little hostile they never surrendered to his personality keeping their own proud reserve i'll walk he thought suddenly he found a young porter who in anxious fashion so unlike american porters who were always so superior to the luggage that they conveyed was wheeling magnificent trunks on a very insecure barrel these two boxes of mine harkness said stopping him i want to walk over to trellis can they be sent over happen they can said the young porter doubtfully they are labeled to the man-at-arms hotel harkness said they'll be there as soon as you will said the young porter cheered at the sight of an american tip which he put in his pocket thinking in his heart that these foreigners were damn fools to throw their money around as they did he advanced towards the stout lady hopefully she might also prove to be american harkness plunged out of the station into the broad white road a sign pointed trellis three miles so meredith had been exactly right as he left the village behind him and strode on between the cornfields he felt a marvellous freedom he was heading now directly for the sea the salt tang of it struck him in the face larks were circling in the blue air above him poppies scattered the corn with splashes of crimson here and there gaunt rocks rose from the heart of the gold no human being was in sight 
His love of etching had given him something of an etcher's eye, and he saw here a spreading tree and a pool of dark shadow, there a distant spire on the curving hill that he thought would have caught the fancy of his beloved Le Pierre or Le Gros, here a wayside pool like brittle glass that would have enchanted Appian, there a cottage with a sweeping field that might have made Rembrandt happy. He seemed to be in unison with the whole of nature, and when the road left the fields and dived into the heart of a common, his happiness was complete. He stood there, his feet pressing in upon the rough, springing turf. A lark, singing above him, came down as though welcoming him, then circled up and up and up. He raised his head, stared into the pale, faint blue, until he seemed himself to circle with the bird, the turf pressing him upwards, his hands lifting him, he swinging into spaceless ecstasy. Then his gaze fell again and swung out beyond, and there was the sea. The down ran in a green wave to the blue line of the sky, but in front of him it split, breaking into brown rocky patches, and between the brown curves a pool of purple sea lay like water in a cup. He walked forward, deserting for a moment the road. He stood at the edge of the cliff and looked down. The tide was high, and the line of the sea slipped up to the feet of the cliff, splashing there its white fringe of spray, then very gently fell back. Sea pinks starred the cliffs with color. Seagulls whirled, fragments of white foam against the blue. Just below him one bird sat, its head cocked, waiting. With a shrill cry of vigor and assurance, it flashed away, curving, circling, bending, dipping, as though it were showing to Harkness what it could do. He walked along the cliff path, happier than he had been for many, many months. This was enough, were there no more than this. For this, at least, he must thank Meredith, this peace, this air, this silence. Turning a bend of the cliff, he saw the town. 9. It was absolutely the town of his vision. He saw, with a strange tightening of his heart, as though he were being warned of something, that that was so. There was the curving bay with the faint fringe of white penciling the yellow sand, there the houses rising tier on tier above the beach, there the fringe of dusky wood. What did it mean? Why had he a clutch of terror, as though someone was whispering to him that he must turn tail and run? Nothing could be more lovely than that town, basking in the mellow afternoon light, and yet he was afraid at the sight of it, afraid so that his content and happiness of a moment ago were all gone, and of a sudden he longed for company. He was so well accustomed to his own reactions, and so deeply despised them, that he shrugged his shoulders and walked forward. Never, it seemed, was it possible for him to enjoy anything for more than a moment. Trouble and regret always came. But this was not regret. It was rather a kind of forewarning. He did not know that he had ever before looked on a place for the first time with so odd a mingling of conviction that he had already seen it, of admiration for its beauty, and of some sort of alarmed dismay. Beautiful it was, more Italian than English, with its white walls, its purple sea, and warm, scented air. So peaceful, and of so happy a tranquillity. He tried to drive his fear from him, but it hung on so that he was often turning back and looking behind him over his shoulder. He struck the road again. It curved now, white and broad, down the hill toward the town. At the very peak of the hill, before the descent began, a man was standing, watching something. Harkness walked forward, then also stood still. The man was so deeply absorbed that his absorption held you. He was standing at the edge of the road, and Harkness must pass him. 
At the crunch of Harkness' step on the gravel of the road, the man turned and looked at him with startled surprise. Harkness had come across the soft turf of the down, and his sudden step must have been an alarm. The fellow was broad-shouldered, medium height, clean-shaven, tanned, young, under thirty at least, dressed in a suit of dark blue. He had something of a naval air. Harkness was passing when the man said, "'Have you the right time on you, sir?' His voice was fresh, pleasant, well-educated. Harkness looked at his watch. "'Quarter past five, he said. He was moving forward when the man, hesitating, spoke again. Uh, "'You don't see anyone coming up the road?' Harkness stared down the white, sun-bleached expanse. "'No,' he said after a moment. "'I don't.' They looked for a while, standing side by side, silently. After all, he wasn't more than a boy, not a day more than twenty-five, but with that grave, reserved look that so many British boys who were old enough to have been in the war had. "'Sure you don't see anybody?' he asked again. "'Coming up that farther bend?' "'No,' said Harkness, shading his eyes with his hand against the sun. "'Can't say as I do.' "'Damn nuisance,' the boy said. "'He's half an hour late now.' The boy stood as though to attention, his figure set, his hands at his side. "'Ah, there's someone,' said Harkness, but it was only an old man with his cart. He slowly pressed up the hill past them, urging his horses with a thick guttural cry, an old man, brown as a berry. "'I beg your pardon,' the boy turned to Harkness. "'You'll think it an awful impertinence, B but are you in a terrible hurry?' "'No,' said Harkness, "'not terrible. I want to be at the man-at-arms by dinner-time, that's all.' "'Oh, you've got lots of time,' the boy said eagerly. "'Look here. This is desperately important for me. The man ought to have been here half an hour ago. If he doesn't come in another twenty minutes, I don't know what I shall do.' It's just occurred to me. There's another way up this hill, a shortcut. He may have chosen that. He may not have understood where it was that I wanted him to meet me. Would you mind, would you do me the favor of just standing here while I go over the hill there to see whether he's waiting on the other side? I won't be away more than five minutes. I'd be so awfully grateful. Why, of course, said Harkness. He's a fisherman with a black beard. You can't mistake him. And if he comes, if you just ask him to wait for a moment until I'm back. Certainly, said Harkness. Oh, thanks most awfully. Very decent of you, sir. The boy touched his cap, climbed the hill, and vanished. Harkness was alone again. Not a sound anywhere. The town shimmered below him in the heat. He waited, absorbed by the picture spread in front of him, then apprehensive again and conscious that he was alone. The alarm that he had originally felt at sight of the town had not left him. Suppose the boy did not return, was playing some joke on him, perhaps. No, whatever else it was, it was not that. The boy had been deeply serious, plunged into some kind of crisis that was of tremendous importance to him. Harkness decided that he would wait until the shadow of a solitary tree to his right reached him, and then go. The shadow crept slowly to his feet. At the same moment a figure turned the bend, a man with a black beard. He was walking quickly up the hill, as though he knew that he were late. Harkness went forward to meet him. The man stopped as though surprised. "'I beg your pardon,' said Harkness. "'Were you expecting to meet someone here?' Oh, I, "'I was, yes,' said the man. "'He will be back in a moment. "'He was afraid that you might have come up the other way. "'He went over the hill to see.' "'Aye,' said the man, standing, his legs apart, quite unconcerned. "'He was a handsome fellow, broad-shouldered, "'wearing dark blue trousers and a knitted jersey. "'He'll be a friend of Mr. Dunbar's, maybe?' "'No, I'm not,' Harkness explained. "'I was passing, and he asked me to wait for a moment "'and catch you if you came while he was away.' "'Aye,' said the fisherman, "'taking out a large wedge of tobacco and filling his pipe. 
I'm a bit later than I said I'd be. Wife kept me. Fine evening, said Harkness. Aye, said the man. At that moment the boy came over the hill and joined them. Very good of you, sir, he said. You're late, Jabez. Good night, said Harkness, and moved down the hill. He could see the two in urgent conversation as he moved forward. The incident occupied his mind. Why had the matter seemed of such importance to the boy? Why a meeting so elaborately appointed out there on the hillside? The fisherman, too, had seemed surprised that he, a stranger, should be concerned in the matter. Had he been in America, the affair would have been at once explained. Bootlegging, of course. But here, in England? End of Part 1, Section 1